Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong. In episode 10, Elise and I chat with Jane Liu, a master's student at Imperial College London studying science communication. Jane was in town to conduct interviews for her master's thesis, and I took the opportunity to interview her about what she's discovered so far. Hello, and welcome to Strange New Worlds, episode 10. Episode 10, Elise, can you believe it? It, it Double does not digits. feel like it's been that far. We're so old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge somebody named Brandon Shea Mutala, who contacted me over Twitter, saying that he actually listens to this podcast, which is amazing. It's, that, it's heartening. <laughs> that people actually listen to this thing. I mean, we just started it like last month, and already we have a listener from Saskatchewan. So thank you, uh, waving up uh, north to you in Canada. And Brandon Shea Mutala actually suggested that Elise and I say where you can find us online if we have any social media presence. And I don't know if you have any of these crazy types of accounts, at least, but you can always find me on Twitter at MikeWai, M-I-Q-U-A-I. That's my Twitter handle. Um, this podcast itself doesn't have an actual Twitter handle or professional website or anything. That's just because I don't know what I'm doing when I'm podcasting. I'm basically just a scientist who likes talking about science and Star Trek. So, Elise, do you have anywhere? Uh, no, I'll make a Twitter. Okay, at least we'll <laughs> I'll, make, I'll a make a Twitter. Specifically, I'm, I'm not so great at the online communication thing, which is funny because I'm the younger one, but I'm, I'm real bad at it. <laughs> yeah, well, make an effort for you guys, though. Thanks to all of our listeners so far, and please get in contact with us. And let us know what you like about the podcast and what you'd like to hear about next time. Well, this time we have a really special guest with us today. Jane Liu is from Imperial College London, or that's where mm -hmm. you're studying. And you are sort of a social scientist, is that right? Who studies scientists. Yes. So for my undergrad, I actually studied environmental science at University of California, Irvine. But now I'm across the pond finishing up my master's degree at Imperial College London, in science communication. So what made you decide to switch from studying environmental science to studying science communication? I think it's really important to be able to communicate your science to the general public because as an environmental scientist there are a lot of things that we would really like to change in the world, right? Um, and I felt like it was really vital to be able to communicate your environmental science to the public because they have to be able to understand what you're saying in order to even make a change in their lifestyle. So that's the basics of why I decided to make the jump. Yeah, it's certainly certainly an important thing, science communication, because I mean, otherwise we just kind of sit around twiddling our thumbs and yelling at each other in the latest jargon, mm -hmm. knowing scientists. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you're writing a master's dissertation mm -hmm. on the importance of emotions in science and especially in science communication. Right. And when you told me that, I remembered something from Star Trek, which is that, oh, I realized in Star Trek, almost all of the science officers are emotionally stunted. Somehow. Are exactly. Like Spock in the original series was mm -hmm. half Vulcan, but he completely adopted this Vulcan demeanor of suppressing one's emotions. Mm -hmm. 
in the next generation, we had Data, who was an android. And though Data desperately wanted to be more human, he couldn't quite understand how emotion played into the role of his fellow crewmates. And then in Voyager, we had Seven of Nine, who was a cyborg and struggling to regain her humanity. And a lot of that was the emotional awareness of how to interact with people. In Deep Space Nine, I suppose the sort of outsider was Odo. Odo wasn't exactly a scientist, but he was a constable, um, somebody who really adheres to the rules and is a, an investigator, like a, like a, almost like a Sherlock Holmes kind of character who is, is very, uh, he notices a lot of different things and can put together the pieces of a puzzle to solve a crime mystery. And Odo also was very stern and didn't display all too much emotion, although he had more emotion than these other characters we were talking about. And Enterprise, the latest series, had T'Pol in the classic Vulcan science officer role, also very suppressed Voyager emotions. Voyager, too, had, I mean, Voyager's tactical officer was a Vulcan, right? <coughs> Who was the science That's officer true. on Voyager? So I, I, I think Seven of Nine was mainly yeah. like the science officer. Yeah, Excuse there were just a lot of science <coughs> folks on Voyager. Yeah. So I was noticing that, and I really wanted to talk to you about emotions in, in science. And first of all, so why do you think there is this kind of stereotype in Star Trek for very brilliant scientists who don't really know how to handle their emotions? Are, are you asking me? Yeah, go for oh, it. Oh, geez. Well, um, so I guess it could stem from the whole kind of eccentric professor kind of stereotype, and also the, the kind of mythos of science as being beyond like humanity, it's up on a pedestal is something that's like absolutely true and emotion clouds your judgment and like people will like if they get emotional finagle their data and not see the truth and they'll see what they want to see and not what's actually there. Mm -hmm. And then there's also this sort of idea about who does science. It's the quiet, weird little boy usually who might not be socially skilled, but oh geez, he's gifted in other ways. And it's almost like a way of saying, well, if you didn't get the emotions, you got the logic. And it's, it's just this kind of like stereotype of, of people who act a certain way going to science. And like in some ways, it's, I mean, going to Caltech, like you, got, you run into these sort of eccentric, definitely emotionally different folks who may have trouble interacting with other humans, but are just brilliant in their own ways. But I mean, that's not everyone who does science, right? Like, it's, it, I think it definitely stems from that stereotype, for sure. It's, it's not necessarily reflective of absolute truth, but I mean, almost every stereotype's rooted in a little grain of, of truth at the bottom. And, and the fact that, I mean, a lot of people who have gone into science have been eccentric or odd or didn't fit in when they were younger, probably just fed into that a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I would like to add also, I think that there's a culture within science in terms of being detached from emotions. Oh, geez, and I yeah. definitely think that stems from efforts of objectivity. Yeah. I think there's that this dichotomy between emotions, logic, and reason. Science and mathematics, oh, it can't have any emotion in there. There's no place for emotion in it because you want to be as objective as possible in your data and your research because you're trying to find a truth that's separate from the experimenter. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely think that because of these efforts for objectivity, it's kind of leaked into the way that scientists even interact emotionally. Yeah, and there's almost, like, among among some students, there's almost, like, kind of a contest to be the most emotionally detached or emo the most sort of different, or, like, people will brag about the strange dreams that they've had and stuff like that. It, 
And then also when you're when you're learning to write for science, they tell you do not use the active voice. Mm, use passive mm -hmm. voice. Use passive voice. You will sound unprofessional if you use the active voice. So I can say, I did an experiment. I had an experiment was performed, and it's it's completely detaching the experimenter from their results. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of the point of the scientific method yeah. that mm -hmm. it can the same experiment can be performed by anybody. Right. Right. And that's what gives science its power. But at the same time, does this kind of removing the scientist from the science present any problems? I definitely think so. I think that there can be a balance between being objective and being emotive, right? There's a fine balance. You don't want to be too emotional, of course, but I think it is definitely possible to have emotion within your work, you know, just passion, um, enthusiasm about your research, but also communicating it in a way where you have emotion, right? Because that's a huge part of who we are as humans, the consciousness of emotion. I mean, of course, uh, it's arguable whether or not animals have emotions as well, but it's a consciousness that we have of our emotions that really makes the biggest difference, especially in science communication, because it's a way to relate to one another. Mm -hmm. I would like to say that it's a connective tissue between the internal self and the external world. And that external world also involves people, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's also super important when you're talking to non-scientists too, because I mean, they're not in this sort of objectivity game mm -hmm. that we are. So if, so if you're gonna go up to somebody and be like, I study bacteria that breathe rocks, and they'll be like, great. But if you're like, I study bacteria that breathe rocks, and it's really important because of all of these different ways, and it has applications all over the place, and I'm super excited about it, like, oh, maybe I should be super excited about it too. Like, it, it, it's, Having had professors who just absolutely hate being there, or professors mm -hmm. who are just neutral to the existence of classes, and then having professors who are super hyped to be there and like get super excited about the material, it makes all the difference in the world how ready I am to accept what they're saying. Yeah. And I mean, I'm even coming from a place of supposed objectivity, like, oh, whatever they have to say has to be valid because it's science. But I mean, we're people. Do we're not we're not data. We're not cyborgs. We're not robots, androids, anything. We're okay. Even scientists are people too. And yeah. so like, it's almost a lie to remove the scientists from the science. Yeah, exactly. And it makes me wonder, what would science be without the scientist? Yeah. Right? Nothing. Exactly. What well, if you had computers <laughs> like running experiments? Maybe we'll get there one day. Maybe we'll find out. <laughs> but I definitely think science is a way for us to orientate ourselves in the world. It's a way for people to understand how to navigate through the world um, in the best way possible and the most objective way possible. So tell us a little bit more about your dissertation and, and the, the, the main gist of it. I know you've told me about emotion as a state of being. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So oftentimes emotions are synonymously interchanged with feelings, but actually I argue in my dissertation that there is a distinction between the two. So I think that emotions is a state of being, whereas feelings are the experience of that emotion. So essentially feelings are bringing emotions to consciousness, to the human mind, whereas emotions is more of a neurophysiological reactional state to either internal thoughts or you know any interactions with the external world. Can you give me an example of what you mean? Hmm. So let's take, for example, if you're, you're in a situation where 
your body starts to react in a certain way, but you're not necessarily conscious of it, right? So your pupils dilate, your blood pressure heightens, just these physiological reactions to things, but you don't necessarily know why just yet. And then later on you realize, oh wow, I'm, I've actually been really anxious this entire time. Mm -hmm. And then you start feeling the anxiety, right? But the emotion was the state of being anxious. Before um, you even noticed it. Before you even noticed it. So I think just that example shows that there is a slight distinction between emotion and feelings. So how do emotions and how do feelings then work their way into science? Well, again, I go back to the word connective tissue, right? So feelings are a way for the human internal self to connect with the external world. What I'm trying to say is, so if feelings are supposed to be this connective tissue between the emotions and the internal state with the external world. In a similar way, you can use feelings to connect people to the value of science. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, yeah. Yeah, because I think oftentimes, I mean, not everybody values science, right? Mm -hmm. But because we're all human and we have this emotional side of us, if you forego emotions in any kind of communication or any kind of discussion, it really takes a detrimental impact on the way that somebody perceives science. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's also almost like kind of an elitism thing. Like yeah. if, if somebody's being, if somebody comes up to you and they're like, well, I know that I'm right because of all of these different facts. I mean, it's, it's quite easy to just brush them off. Like, oh, they're just being like conceited and full of themselves and think mm -hmm. they're so great. And, or like they're talking down to me, just kind of bombarding exactly. you with facts instead of like connecting with it on a more human level and like mm -hmm. understand, like feeling the importance and letting people like feel off of you almost. Exactly, and I think feelings have that potential to either positively or negatively impact somebody's perception of science, which is exactly why you need to be careful in the way that you use emotion. So if somebody is talking down to you, of course, you're already going to have a like negative You don't want them reaction. to be right. Like, no. Even if what they're saying is something that you would completely agree with yeah. otherwise. Like, yeah. You don't like them for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like, You feel negatively towards the interaction. You might look negatively on the results just because of that association. Yeah, whereas if somebody had a more positive emotion, like a more inspirational, like awe-inducing emotion when they're communicating with you, it makes you want to learn more about their science. I mean, I don't know about you, Michael, but before you were even interested in Star Trek, what made you actually get into science? Star Trek. Uh, yeah, so it was the other way around. I, <laughs> okay. I definitely fell in love with Star Trek long before I knew that I, I was the other to way around, though. I was, I was the opposite of Mike. I got into science as a kid just because it was wonderful. Like, not wonderful in the way of, like, good, but wonderful as in, like, a sense of wonder, just, and, like, awful as in a sense of awe, like, full of awe, just, like, scary and inspiring and like just just so much joy mm -hmm. but also fear and unknown and it felt like exploration and it felt like exhilarating it was not anything about like I want to win this prize and that prize and I want to discover this and that and this it was very much like I wanted to put on boots and run around and pretend that I was like an astronaut and it, it was very very emotionally fueled as a kid yeah for sure yeah. Um, so the the whole sense of being excited and inspired is like I'm like yes like this is this is why I did it and then I went through a phase in middle school where I started watching Star Trek and I saw Spock and I was like oh scientists aren't supposed to have feelings and I started trying to suppress all of my emotions 
and it did not end very well. I lost a lot of friends. I became really strange. But I think that's just yeah. middle school in general. I, mean, okay. Really okay. I wore a different then... hat to school every day. I wore all black and neon. I had clear plastic socks, like clear plastic <laughs> shoes that I wore shoe printed socks. I was a weird kid. And I was like, I didn't have very many friends. And I think a lot of it came back to just kind of internalizing like, oh, since I'm a scientist, I don't need emotions. Emotions are beneath me. Like mm-hmm. these other people need emotions, but that's because they're too weak in the mind to do science. But it's, it was completely forgetting why I wanted to do it in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and I would also add the very fact that you were passionate and just so joyful about science in the first place. If you remember that purpose, right, that feeling that you had with science, wouldn't you want to share that with other people yeah, as well? Yeah, for sure. It's And that's like the, the people who do it right are the people who get really excited about it. Like mm-hmm. there's a reason that, I mean, Maybe not jumping off the walls excited, but Carl Sagan looked super happy anytime he was talking about science. Like, yeah. maybe maybe a sort of chemically induced intoxication, intoxication <laughs> happy, but he was certainly a happy guy when he was talking about it, and, and he treated it like a dream almost. Yeah. And, and he was kind of really the first super successful science communicator, I think, because he tapped into this more like visceral, emotive part of science. And when he made Cosmos, he commissioned artists to draw the beautiful images that he didn't have yet because Hubble hadn't come out. There was just no other way to get people interested and engaged. And yeah. so he made it a story instead of a textbook, which yeah. was the success of it all. And that passion is definitely infectious, I feel like. Yeah. And that's why I think emotions are so important within science communication. I mean, if you even think about Star Trek, it's a form of science communication, oh, yeah, isn't it? yeah, for sure. And I think for a lot of people who weren't even interested in science before, who are interested in it now because of Star Trek, it shows you how emotive, emotive communication within this medium has inspired people to value science mm-hmm. in a more real way. It's a foot in the door for a lot of people yeah. who don't otherwise have the, the push to go and like get science or if they're not exposed to it for some reason. Like my little cousin, loves space now just because his mom started showing him Star Trek and he liked the like the exploration stories and he liked that sort of heroism almost that like the the heroes the classic like hero's journey story that everyone's associated with like he just latched onto that but it was in space so he's like space must be part of this cool thing that I'm feeling when I'm watching this show too so he he's now like super into NASA and everything and it's it's really because of shows and yeah. and it wouldn't have been like if she had just plopped a textbook down on his lap he would probably have hated it mm-hmm. you're, you're definitely right about star trek itself being emotional too which is interesting considering you know all this talk about the breaking the roddenberry rule mm-hmm. there's going to be some somewhat more negative emotion or more complex emotion on display coming up do we have to talk about the roddenberry rule again no. <laughs> No, no, no. We're, we're not gonna cut it out. We're just like I'm not gonna. We're not gonna, we're gonna go dive into, into yeah. all of that again. Yeah, we've already explained yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> it's already been a C episode. Uh, whatever. Eight, eight and seven. Yeah. So yeah. Don't um, ignore that. <laughs> did, did you grow up watching Star Trek, or do you just did Mike just tell you it existed? And Mike yeah. just told me it existed. Yeah. How did I know? How did I know? <laughs> Mike is wearing a Star Trek shirt, for the record. I try to wear one every single day <laughs> yeah. we record I get really podcast. distracted by them sometimes, especially because this, like, this one and one Some of the other detail. ones are very detailed bridge scenes. And the one from last recording had all these speech bubbles above people's heads with like images on the inside, and like Sulu is imagining fencing, and 
I was trying to figure out what Bones is meant, and then it it was really distracting, in a good way. This one's Captain Kirk, right? This one's, yeah. The the yellow shirt in the front is Captain Kirk. Yeah. And then Uh, which one is Spock? Spock is, is he the one with the T? Yeah. No, no, it's a triple. Or is he the one with No, he's this one. He's this one. Because his eyebrows are all funky. That's why. Oh, so is this one right here on the left. Who's that one? Oh, it's so many Spocks. So many Spocks. Yeah, Spock's dad's there. Old Spock. Yeah, well, Nimoy Spock. Is that Nimoy? This is okay. Yeah, this is a new bridge. Yeah, I wonder how he feels when he's eating that donut or drinking that coffee. So Spock would tell you that it's agreeable, but <laughs> yeah. not. Yeah. So do we think that Spock and Data are they missing something, not just as people, but specifically as scientists, by shunning their emotions or simply just not having emotions? Well, Data doesn't have them in the first place, mm-hmm. so that, I think that's kind of different because yeah. his whole like way of interacting with the world is not based on that at all. He wasn't evolutionarily guided towards interacting with things that way. But it hinders his ability to express himself and relate with the crew, which mm-hmm. we see. I mean, they all love him in sort of like a, like a pet, almost, but not as a person. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they respect him because he's so smart. Spock, I do think it hinders him a bit because he ignores things sometimes that he doesn't want to feel, which are important for making judgments. I mean, it completely alienated him from Bones, right? Like, Bones would actively ignore things that Spock said or change his opinion to contradict Spock's just because he didn't like Spock. At least in that way, certainly. Do you have anything to say about that? Um, I think if you remove emotions, it definitely hurts the people around you and your relationships with them. Yeah. And I think as scientists, that's kind of almost a negative thing because the very necessity, I think, of science is to share it with the world. Because if you don't, what would be the point of conducting the experiments yeah, in the first place? If you can't get somebody else excited enough about it to try and replicate your results, your results don't mean anything. Exactly. And then we also talked about the motivational aspect of the personal scientific journey, too, and, and being inspired, feeling wonder. It's, it's, it's very important, at least, at least for me. Now, to come to the defense of emotionless beings, uh, <laughs> I, I need to say that my brother has often told me that Tuvok is the best security officer in all of Starfleet. And I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm, I like Tuvok. He's a great, uh, you know, Vulcan character. Uh, but I don't know. I'm a Worf fan, and so I often have the, this argument with my brother. Like, Worf is the best security officer. No, Tuvok is the best security. All right. And so my brother's rationale is that, hey, look, who do you want in charge of launching photon torpedoes in a crisis situation? Somebody who's easily emotionally riled like Worf is, or somebody who's completely dispassionate. Somebody who's not going to get muddled up in whether or not this alien deserves some vengeance of yours, or uh, is going to get scared, or is going to uh, get overwhelmed in any way. They're just going to use logical facts to figure out the best situation in a crisis. And so that is his argument, and it makes sense to me, you know, that you would want somebody logical in charge of your tactical and your security on a ship. Mm. And sometimes in science too, you're faced with really big decisions where emotions can sort of lead you in the wrong path perhaps. And I encounter this as an astrobiologist sometimes because astrobiologists, we all want to understand the distribution of life in the universe. We want to look for life. We want to find evidence for either past life or present life on other worlds. 
And there's an inherent hope in doing that, right? And hope is an emotion too, because we want there to be life on Mars so that we can find it. We want there to be that biosignature that we talked about in the previous episode so that we can find it. Or we want to have our model show that Mars was habitable billions of years ago, because that's exciting. And I often talk to other more senior scientists who caution me about getting too hopeful or excited or wanting to sway the results of my science in a direction that I would find exciting because it means better prospects for life out there in the universe. You also wouldn't be researching at all, though, if you didn't find it exciting at least a little bit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So there is a balance there. That's why you want Picard, not Worf, not (laughs) Tuvok. Tell me. That's why, I mean, Picard's a captain, but he's like hailed as one of the best tacticians in Starfleet, right? Mm-hmm. And he can balance, he's, he's a very collected man. He has his emotions in check, but he still experiences them. And so he's able to kind of balance the logic of a situation. He's very brave. He's able to keep his cool in a, in a crisis like Tuvok would, but he's also able to understand the emotional motivations of others which is important when you're in a tactical situation because the way that another party's feeling is data. So if Tuvok was somehow able to understand emotion well enough objectively to calculate all of those variables and make his decision, then sure, an emotionless being is fine, but he'd have to be able to perceive it some way and understand it on a deep enough level to predict behavior based on that. Whereas Worf understands honor, he understands bloodlust, he understands anger, and so he understands people who act based on those things. But he doesn't understand logic, and he might lose his cool and act on his emotions when you're not supposed to. Picard considers the logic and the emotion and makes a decision based on both. He's like the ideal, almost. All hail, Sir Captain Sir Jean-Luc Captain Jean-Luc Patrick, Patrick Stewart Picard, <laughs> the first of his name, yes. <laughs> protector of the, the Seven Kingdoms. I don't know. What, but that's, Game of Thrones, wrong show. <laughs> that's the exact balance that you do need to have within science, right? You can't be so passionate that you would want to manipulate your research in any way because as a scientist you are trying to strive for a truth but at the same time if again if you don't have that emotion in the first place that passion to drive you to want to even conduct those experiments then then there would be no point in even starting the experiment and so that's why it is important to incorporate emotions and not just be scared of it or scorn it or avoid it and look down on it because there is value to emotion. All right, so I want to quickly ask you about the research that you've done here in Pasadena. So you're doing your master's at Imperial, but you came back here to interview a bunch of Caltech scientists Mm -hmm. about how they incorporate emotion in their science and their science communication. So Mm -hmm. what have you learned by speaking to Caltech scientists? That... Caltech scientists are able to find that balance. Everybody that I've interviewed has shown that they are very well aware of objectivity and efforts for objectivity, but they also are aware of the value of emotion in communication and how it connects with people. And actually, one of the things that I was looking at was whether or not these scientists could use emotions to help connect people to the value of science. And when I was speaking with them and talking to them about certain emotions, the ones that they would typically use were awe, wonder, um, one even said compassion. And when they were talking about that, you could see in their eyes that they were just so passionate about their science 
And yet when they're talking about compassion, awe and wonder, they're talking about it in a way where it connects to something larger than just the self. A lot of the scientists were connecting it to the world and the place of the self in the world. And that's kind of the value for science, isn't it? Because you're trying to strive for how we fit in the world, but how we can orient ourselves through scientific research, through scientific advances in technology. So when the scientists were using emotions and talking about emotions, they were very much aware of how they could use that to connect people to the overall value for science, which I think is the very point of science communication. Definitely prove my hypothesis. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for being here, Jane. No Good luck with your master's <laughs> yeah, dissertation. Sure. I know that's a huge <laughs> undertaking. I feel, I feel so much more validated. And now whenever I tell somebody, like, no, I'm not going to study super like harder than I need to. I need to have a life. I need to know how to connect with people. Now I have like an actual good argument for that, <laughs> other than just I'm lazy and want to sleep and hang out with my friends. <laughs> that concludes episode 10 of Strange New Worlds. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about the role of emotions in science and science communication. We bring you new episodes of Strange New Worlds simply because we are passionate about science and Star Trek, and hopefully we've spread some of that love to you. Until next time, see you out there.